All right, all right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Especially, I feel like I've been gone. And really, it was just... Because you were. A week, yeah, right? Because you were gone. But here we are. We're, it's April. We're into <laughs> the second quarter of 2019. I mean, where does it go? Too bad it's not April 1st, because we could have done some really fun April oh, Fools. We could have had some great times if that were the case. Alas. It's not. It but that's not. okay. And, and welcome back. You see, you missed the all-female financial show last week. It's, yeah. Because... <laughs> Okay. Well, how do you uh, now look? Are you okay. now? Are you trying to assume my gender? No. <laughs> no. I'm still going to claim purple. Close. To, yeah. And I'm going with four. So. Right. Oh. <laughs> I know. I yeah. No. Not at all. I'm I'm totally happy being a woman. I've embraced it. It's probably sometimes a little too much. <laughs> it's an imaginary number. Uh, so. No, I will. Right, so I am the one that walks around Home Depot, and when something is a little too hard, I'm like, I'm a woman. I need help, and I love totally that. There's play that card. Totally, will play that card. <laughs> right. And what guy does not love a damsel in distress? They're like, oh, I'll come help you. It's awesome. Yeah. I don't so. know. Chivalry is not dead, but it's certainly different in, in certain <laughs> circumstances. So yeah. Uh, so I, I am very happy being a woman because there are moments when I'm thinking. Dude, if I was a if I was a man, I couldn't get away with this. So I'm okay. I've embraced it. I've I've embraced my gender. There you go. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of that discussion. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> moving on. Uh, we I, I want to talk today. You know, I have. Uh, it's actually it comes from a client. I'm not going to say who because we respect confidentiality in right. our world. But we get inspired by our clients. Right. And we have this is a really interesting question because as investors, I think everybody's starting to breathe a sigh of relief as they're you're going to start getting statements from the end of Q1, right? Yeah, which will be much better and, than the statements from Q4 last year. Right. And the statement what people are going is like, well, you know, it, it may not be it may not have gotten everything back, but boy, it's a lot better than it was, and that feels much better. And so people are starting to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief, and the question line is, has sort of shifted from, you know, is it all going to collapse to so when do you, th you know, they're talking about recession in the future. What do you think? And uh, so the, the narrative Has from changed. investors is shifting. And so I think the confidence level has been somewhat restored. People are uh, well, you went from the initial, skeptical, right? like you the know? initial panic that, ah, and then now everybody's like, right. okay, I've, I've had my scream moment. I've calmed down a little bit. Right. Now I can talk logically. I've kind of gotten rid of some of the emotion out of it and nailed it. Yeah. Really. So I mean, we're, that, we're that having shift a shift from, Emotional, you know, to emotional to logical response to logical response and and that is evidence that the stress level is coming back out you know, right and we, we've talked about the fact that if you're really emotional that you can't right. make logical decisions that that's it's it's a mechanical reality of how right. our brains work you know that we when you go into fight or flight mode your brain is all about taking sh expediting decisions right so shortcuts to get to a decision quickly accuracy is Optional? Less, <laughs> less relevant in that moment. Optional? <laughs> you may or yeah. may not be accurate. Yeah, if you don't believe me, get really, really worked up over something and then try to do math or something. Yeah. <laughs> you're just you're going to go nuts. Uh, so the, the point, though, is the, this question that was so compelling to me was, all right. So he says to me, so David, tell me something. Uh, and, and I'm going to, again, the context is where... Uh, we we've been working together, right? So this is some this is a so this a, isn't a customer speaking to their advisor. 
And not as a new relationship, Correct. but as somebody this is, this that's been somebody an ongoing that's relationship. Been around for a while and says, so I want you to tell me something. And it says, so what's that? And it says, well, did knowing now what you know and looking back at the situation, would you have changed anything that you did? Back in the fourth quarter. Back in the fourth quarter. Would would you have changed anything or the way you approached it and so forth? Right. Uh, and this is a really good question. Because hindsight is twenty twenty. Right. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, the first thing uh, I, I sort of joked about was, well, you know, if I could have predicted the future, I, I would have really doubled down when it got painful. But that's actually not the way our process works in our office. Right. Uh, and I rely on that term a lot. Process, process, process. I probably, it's important, though. But I probably beat. Uh, the the team up with that word a little bit too much. It's we There's need a process. Actually, we need to make sure that we are following a consistent, rational process so that our emotions aren't going to get us in trouble. But it's also something that is important because to prevent mistakes, to try to keep everybody on the same page. Because if you had a staff member that was emotional and one that wasn't, and we were acting differently. That would be a very scary thing as a client, right? Because you'd be like, oh, I hope I don't get the emotional person on the phone when I call. So like having that consistency in our office is actually more of a stress reliever for us because then we're not trying to figure out what everybody's feeling. It's like, no, this is our process. This is our protocol, right? And it's like, if we do this, then this is what happens. And so for me, um, that actually relieves stress at work knowing that there's a plan. Like I actually have a lot of anxiety around not having a plan. Yeah, well, personally, this is, there's, there's, there's two kinds of people in the world on a road trip, right? The kind of people who say, well, we'll find someplace. And the kind of people who say, we're going to stop here at this time because we pre-planned it. Right? I, uh, I, I'm so, yeah, I, I, the idea of just driving and then stopping somewhere without a destination in mind gives me such high anxiety. Yep. Like, I can't. And there are a lot of people out there that are like, no, that's totally awesome. Uh, By the way, I love you, free spirits. You are totally welcome to come along and be happy that I've planned the place to stay. Because <laughs> yes. I'm the one that made sure we had hotel reservations before we left and enough gas. Um, but no, it, I'm not the one that says we have to check in at 6.04 p.m. or anything crazy like that. Like, I'm okay kind of getting there when we get there. But I want to know where there is. Yeah. And this is this is personality driven. Right. Just so we're clear that. I mean, it's it's really. Oh, no, it's uh, totally. Those my things are personality driven. But. It doesn't change the fact that how we assess a decision is important and process can be really valuable. Now, let me give you a, a very simple but very real example. Uh, if somebody were to go to fly an airplane, right? Okay, and this is particularly relevant these days because of the the Boeing issue and the grounding of the seven thirty seven, um, you know, eight Max, I believe it was uh, the. Pilots are known for making checklists, right? And they have lots of acronyms and so forth. But there's all of these checklists that are designed to prevent them from skipping a step that ends in disaster. Right. So checklist after checklist because they need a high degree of order in what they do. Because if you're going to throw a bunch of metal in the sky, you don't want to take chances with it. Right. right? Now, you're talking about commercial liners. No. 
But I'm, I'm going to, well, I'm going to share. pilots need to do the same thing. There's a protocol that you should follow that involves a pre-flight safety check. There are checks for all of the instrumentation. There's checks for the engine and management and fuel and oil. All those elements are pre-checked. So as a passenger, I didn't realize how extensive the checklist was mm -hmm. until I was a passenger in a small four-person plane. Right. And I was sitting next to the pilot who was going through the checklist. And again, made me feel a lot more confident in his ability, knowing that he thoroughly checked everything. And in fact, it, um, with smaller planes, they're concerned about weight, right? And so weight and balance are two critical issues in small aircraft. Right. Which was kind of funny because he's like, well, how much do you weigh? And I'm like, are you allowed to ask that? I'm a woman. <laughs> but yeah. it was like, how much do you weigh and how much is your luggage? Right. And, and the, because of never flying in a small personal right. craft before, that was something that was new to me. But again, he was trying to make sure the plane was balanced out. And Correct. The load was balanced out. And once I understood why, but it was just kind of weird. Like, how much do you weigh? And I'm like, are oh. you, that's kind of an awkward question. We don't know each other that well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> so the. Uh, the the net result of this is that why the checklist, right? The checklist is because it's consistent, right? To make less errors, it's it's really independent of the emotional state of the pilot, right? The checklist isn't going to change. So whether the pilot's having a good day or a bad day, if you follow the checklist, it can mitigate a lot of potential errors, potentially lethal errors. In fact, right? Uh, so it and it doesn't guarantee things, by the way, but no. it certainly reduces the the number of points of failure if you follow the procedure. And we're talking about process and protocol. So how does that translate into the investment market well, then? Well, it goes back to this original question that we were asking is how when when my client is saying, "Well, how did you do through that market?" And I was able to say to them, "Well, we went back to our process that's predefined and we didn't use an emotional driver of the decision, we said, okay, well, what conditions are present in the marketplace? What do our rules around these conditions tell us we need to do? And we followed the rules. Now, does that mean you're not emotional about it? Heckman's no. Uh, and if <laughs> and you by don't the way, I want to clarify. My wife. I mean, I notice these things as she comes home and goes, "Oh, great, Dave's going to be in a charming mood." So, by the <laughs> way, and and that's something that's important, right? It doesn't mean that as an advisor, you don't feel anything or that you are emotionally disconnected from the market. I think we all have a little bit of an emotional response, but it means that you don't let that lead you, right? Like the process and the procedure is what overrides your emotional response. It's like, nope, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to follow the steps. And if the steps say to do that, there's a reason they're yeah, there. Yeah, in theory. I mean, you, if you're emotional, then what you just say is, well, forget it. I'm not going to do the steps. Right. I mean, that's right. you, you can you could still override and you know force a, a clumsy decision on yourself. And the worst outcome I think that can happen when you do something like that, especially in the investment world, is you can get lucky and have a great outcome. Yeah, because then you're going to think that your emotions are better than well, your process. Yeah, you, you end up with false confidence, right? You get this sort of false confirmation that you're somehow smarter than the markets. And statistically, again and again and again, that's played out that that's not the case. And in fact, even as a professional, as well-informed as I am, it's it's relatively foolish for me to try to outfox the market. Well, I would say it would be worse on the flip side of it, right? If you followed your emotions and maybe pulled out too early or did something that you regret later and you're like, oh, if I would have followed my process, I would have had more money. Well, that is statistically what occurs. Right. right. Well, the reason that we, the reason I'm beating the drum of process is 
because that's what, by following our process, what we did was we mitigated a certain amount of risk in the marketplace. So had things gone the other way, which they could have, believe it or not, the markets and the crisis of confidence were pretty severe in the fourth quarter of last year. What changed it was an about face in the rhetoric coming out of the Federal Reserve. Right. It was literally Jerome Powell giving a speech and going, uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase it, it went something like this. Uh, whoa, 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 I think you misheard us. We meant exactly the opposite of what you think we said. <laughs> that's, that's pretty close to what it was. And, and you're like, we're wait, what? raise interest rates. We might lower them. And everybody, everybody went, what, what, what? Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. And then that was pretty close to the bottom of the market. Uh, so if you- You're definitely paraphrasing on that one. What? <laughs> what? So if you- What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> if, if, if you had, our process had, had mitigated a certain amount of risk, but we were still primarily investing in the market. Right. And, and this is a really important uh, issue is the difference between investing and trading is your commitment to how long you're going to go through this thing, right? Trading is very much about, I have a moment of opportunity that I'm going to try to capitalize on right now. So minute to minute, day to day. It, it can literally be second to second. It can that's, that's what's called scalping when you're when you're doing really really tiny trades of you know maybe just one penny in between price and you're just trying to move position in and right back out and get uh, fractional returns and just do it over and over again. Um, that sounds really tedious. It's a lot of work, right? And I'm speaking from experience. I've tried to play this game. It's a lot of work. It's hard to do consistently. And you're at a tremendous disadvantage to the players that have a lot of technology resources and proximity to an exchange. If you're going to try to compete with high-frequency traders, you're going to really have the deck stacked against you. So okay. then you, you get into swing trading, which is owning positions a little bit longer term. And that may be uh, you know, transitioning from minute to minute or hours in a day to a few days at a time or even a few weeks at a time. Uh, and then you get into more traditional long-term investing. Um, and the interesting thing is in the portfolio manager world, what I've discerned over the course of my career is what the, what the consumer believes is long-term and what the investment professional believes is long-term. Not the same thing. Yeah, they're thing. really not the same thing. <laughs> Uh, a lot of professional <laughs> investors will say, "Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna this long-term holding." Uh, you know, Warren Buffett says, "I'm gonna own this thing for the next 15, 20, 30 years." Okay? That's a long-term holding. That's a long-term holding that aligns with the consumer's vision of what long-term is. But a portfolio manager for a mutual fund may say, "Well, long-term holding could be six to nine months." Oh, or it may be just over 12 months to reach long-term capital gains right. status. But they're, they're still pretty opportunistic. And the other thing is a professional institutional investor will oftentimes change their position sizing. So maybe they want to own Amazon, and at one point it represents 10% of their investments in their total portfolio. And then it goes through a period of time where Amazon's doing really well, and they pair it back to 5%. They start taking profits and reducing the total exposure to Amazon. Amazon then sort of corrects and price drops in value, and it gets below a certain point. They start adding to their position again. Because they're buying it on sale. Scaling in or out of a position, and they're changing their strategic um, the amount that they're holding. See, now that sounds opposite to just a regular person. Because you think, oh, if it's doing better, I should buy more. 
It, and well, you're saying no. If it's doing really good, they buy less, or they kind of get will out of it. Oftentimes, they will, or they'll simply hold. But the other thing is, you know, I, I swear that Wall Street will sometimes an analyst will come onto a television show. We need to do this thing, and then a few days later, they'll do the opposite, right? And and so I don't know if they're just sort of baiting the market to do something to put reposition, but uh, they have price targets, and when those price targets are achieved, they'll look at it and say, well, we have our own process for how we evaluate the price of something and whether or not it's under or overvalued. We believe it's overvalued, so we're going to reduce our holding. Well, isn't that kind of like in. reading about a stock or a mutual fund or something in a financial magazine? Like by the time they've researched it and printed it and everything else, you're getting that information possibly months later. Yeah, but there there's a little difference in the mutual fund world to the stock world. That's a really good question. And I'm realizing I'm looking at the clock. What we ought to do, let's grab a break. Okay. And we'll do that when we come back. Remind me, let's talk about the difference between a stock and a mutual fund and what that means. Like, what is long term? We'll figure that out more when we come right back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shook. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Uh, Dave Littlejohn here, back in studio after a week off. Yeah, you know, just because your kids are on spring break does not mean that you yeah, get It totally break. does. That's that's what it meant. Okay, well, the staff is going to start a queue. We want everybody to have spring break. Uh, no. no. <laughs> no. no I, I thought about it for a moment, and no. You went, uh, no. So, <laughs> I appreciate your honesty on air, it's not going to work. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, but just so we know, <laughs> you did take a week to go to Mexico. I did. So, you know. I I was actually going to do it spring break, but the opportunity presented itself earlier. I'm not complaining about having vacation, by the way. I'm right. totally good. It was just like, like, like well, let's just shut the whole office down for spring break. I'm like, That'd be that, so random. <laughs> that makes less sense than you think. No, uh, it totally makes less sense. But it was just one of those like everybody in the office has kids, and everybody's kids are off this week, and it was just yeah. But most of our clients, they're they're past that point. I know. Right. So I know. Uh, we're checking the levels here. Good. Hey, wave to our live audience, Kyle. We're on Facebook. Uh, Good work. True. So. It's that is true. The clients do need to be serviced. So, but it's just uh, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking, man, like spring break is great for the kids, but throws a wrench for the parents that still have to work and don't have that week off. Because it's like, okay, now what do you want me to do with my kids for a week? Well, I I want you to just keep working. Well, I did. Yeah. And you're welcome. You know. Uh, yeah, I, you know, it's bring your kids to work day again, right? <laughs> and get uh, nothing done. Yeah, that sounds that's a terrible idea. Too. Awful. <laughs> right. Glad we had this talk. Uh, so anyway, back to what our listeners are actually tuning in for. Stocks right. versus mutual funds right. and long-term versus short-term. Right. And this this all comes back to, remember, this is all around this question. So the question is, if you t took a look backwards and said, hey, I just went through a rough patch here right. as an investor, and I'm looking forward and, and now and saying, knowing now what I know... Would it have changed anything I did? What was your answer? So the first answer I said was, well, if I now knew the future right. and could go back in time, I would certainly be really, really opportunistic about that. But since that's not likely to happen, uh, I said, actually, no. The way that we played it was exactly the way our process told us to play it. The only thing that I wish I would have done was 
had I had the ability to override some of our signals at the very, very low point in the market. But the, the reality is that you don't know when the bottom of the market is until after it happened. Right. You right. Know, and so then we had this pretty substantial rebound, and it literally started um, after Christmas, right? So yeah. the Christmas Eve was the low point. Yeah, thanks a lot, Santa Claus rally. Right before Santa got there, we just, you know, the bottom had fallen out of this market for three months. I think the hardest part for me on the market is that a lot of um, just tax documents and different things come out, you know, in January, February. And some of it's based on the account value as of December 31st of that year. Sure. So I'm like, really? We're going to? Yeah. Like, well, thanks for, a lot. Although if you're. For required minimum distribution calculations. That was awesome. Be, <laughs> if you don't want to take money out of your retirement plan, woohoo. Yeah. Right? You know, you just got uh, the Reduction. equivalent of a, uh, a discounted rate. Right. You know, because. Uh, but uh, I feel like that, like everybody, even everybody's a big word. I feel like the people that do not look at their statements all year long. Always look at the December statement because there may be tax consequences or tax issues, not issues, but tax documents that go along mm -hmm. with it. And the one that everybody looks at is what their account value was at the end of December. So it's like you could have been doing good all year long and then all of a sudden December took a poop and it was like, and there she, and there there, she goes. There she goes. And I'm like, that's like the final one, right? It's like the deadline right there. Well, it is. It's interesting. So this this is also really excellent to discuss uh, I, I use this. I've given this talk before, right? And the the, the lecture is, what's your yardstick? Oh, I know this one. Okay, so what is your yardstick? Folks? How are you measuring? How are you measuring? Are we using inches? Are we using meters? True. Are we using stones? Right, and that's a weight. Uh, <laughs> So <laughs> don't don't start hands, going right into like horse. Are we using hands? How are we going to measure here? Leaps and uh, bounds. There's about sixteen hand. Uh, uh, like okay, axe handles. I mean, let's we could choose lots of units of measurement that are right. obscure. The the point here is that how you measure your investment success is really really important. And one of the great I won't call it lies, but it's it's a little deceptive for the financial industry is this idea that you need to measure your gains from January 1 to December 31. Right. Everybody chooses the calendar, but the economy doesn't care about the calendar. No. The stock market doesn't care about the calendar. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> right? It's it's uh it really doesn't think that way at all. So what you're really talking about is if you're going to measure one of the things that I, I Honestly, I've not had an investor in my career ever walk in and tell me, hey, can you give me a 12 or a 24-month rolling return history for the last five or 10 years? They don't even know what that is. They no clue what that is, right? And the reality is, here's what it's asking for. Imagine if I wanted to get a 12-month rolling return look at the way the market has behaved. What I would say is, let's start with two years ago, let's say, and go, or let's even start with last year. It's 2018. Okay. And I want to know what was my return from January 1 to December 31. Okay. And then I want to say, well, now tell me what was my return from February 1 to January 31 of the next year. Oh, is that what it means to have a rolling and, one? And then after that, show me my returns from March to March right, to it would be, be April 
first, right? right. So March first, or, or March first to, to March thirtieth, right? Uh, or thirty-one. The, the The idea is that you're going to keep getting a twelve-month sample of data, and then shift forward one month and right. get a new twelve months, and then shift forward again one month, and each of those is going to have a little different return, and then you average them out. Oh, that's so and interesting. What, and what you've done is you've given yourself an idea. What is my actual average return for this account on a rolling basis? Because what if as an investor, you walk in the door in March? Yeah, it's not Your like everybody starts. Your 12-month anniversary is in, in, in March. March. It's right. not December 31st. Right. So you're, you're measuring off of a calendar, but that's not where you started. And my question comes back to so what if you own an investment that consistently dips in december because you have a mutual fund that declares capital gains in december every year so and pushes it, money it out dips and then you look at it and go well the performance looks much worse so well what if you measured it from february, uh, to, february, february. to february yeah and all of a sudden it looks really better, good yeah right? so those are the considerations that i'm talking about is how do you measure and and better yet why not take an actual investment cycle? Who thinks one year is a fair amount of time to judge a long-term investment strategy? Who does? I mean, anybody can have a good year or a bad year. That does not an investor make. That's true. Right? You want to talk about a market cycle. Now, you can argue with me market cycles are getting compressed because information moves faster than it used to. Right. I mean, I make that argument that you know we no longer have economic cycles that take years and years and years because data and information moves so much faster than it did decades ago. It seems like fashion trends, right? They're no longer 10, 10 year decades. They're like, oh, this was in trend for six months. <laughs> Kinda. <laughs> it feels uh, like it. But All the, those the, stuff, the, trends keep coming back. Oh yeah, the trends are, the creativity in the fashion industry is uh, interesting. Because you know, I am seeing things that we—it's like I swear, mom jeans are the thing again, right? Oh my god! Like <laughs> mom things were never the thing. <laughs> they're totally the thing right now. I'm and they seeing are these, these gals that are wearing these uh, high-waisted pants. Like, let's get them up over our belly button here. And I'm going. You, you realize, like Saturday Night Live actually made a joke sketch about this. Yeah. Right. That mom jeans. If you go look it up, it's probably 15 years old. Oh, but, yeah. but the mom jeans sketch is like a good snicker. Oh, yeah. and, and now what is everybody out there rushing to buy? High waisted jeans. Mom oh, but they, jeans. But they re, uh, relabel it right now. They're high waisted jeans. Sure. Like, no, those were mom jeans. Yeah. No different than it was like Atkins forever. And now it's the keto diet. And I'm like, it's ketosis. It's still the Atkins diet. Like right. they're the same thing. New packaging. So. Okay, so stocks versus mutual funds. Yeah, well, I'm gonna get. I want to finish the last thought on on this. What's your yardstick? I think that if you were to take, say, a two year or even a three year rolling return, and then look at your performance over a th that period of time, now you're getting into investment territory where you're going to go through some up and down cycles. And what you want to see is how does your investment perform in both good markets and bad, and how does your process if you have one, handle that or your strategy. That's another way to describe it because strategy is, hey, I set up a certain amount in stocks and bonds, foreign and domestic, large and small, rah, rah, rah. And how well did that weather the storms of the markets over a period of multiple years, huh. not just a few quarters? Okay, So that's the, that's the key takeaway, number one. But now back to your question, long-term, short-term. Why are mutual funds different than stocks when it comes to measuring... Uh, long-term versus short-term holding periods. Not gains, but holding periods. Because you mentioned a magazine article. This right. is what started. You said, well, by the time you get a magazine article... Like the data's old. It's not It's, it's, it's old, not so fresh. it doesn't matter anymore. Well, a mutual fund, you're not 
you're not buying the performance of a stock. You're not looking at the valuation of a stock and saying this individual company here that has idiosyncratic risk. Okay. Okay, which is the way of saying it's not related to the whole system. It has its own unique risks. It could make a dumb decision. It could have a lawsuit. It could have a plane crash. It could, you know, you know, Boeing having a plane crash doesn't affect Airbus. No. Not directly. It's a Boeing problem. Now, it affects aviation a little bit, so it's not totally in the clear, but it, by and large, it's a Boeing problem, not a Home Depot problem. Right. Right? So it's not system-wide. <laughs> Unless it crashes into Home Depot. Fair enough. Then it's a Home Depot problem. <laughs> yeah. And then, then we got a lot of issues to discuss on this program. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, and the CEO of Home Depot was there, and oh, no. Yeah. Uh, so we could play the what-if game. We're really good at it. But... The trick on as we're thinking this through is the risk that's associated with a single stock isn't the same as the way we assess the risk of a mutual fund. Well, a mutual fund holds multiple things. It doesn't it, hold it one holds specific position. Things. So is the strategy that they are employing and the methodology they are employing still relevant within the time frame? So I've always said like a mutual, uh, mutual fund is kind of like shopping at Walmart, right? Walmart is the mutual fund and all the contents inside of Walmart are all different, right? There's automotive, there's grocery, there's clothing. Sure. So there's all these different industries that are housed under one place versus saying, I want Jif peanut butter. That's a stock, like something very specific. Okay, I can kind of Does that, that. work? Cuz like sure. cuz you say mutual funds and people are like, "Well, I don't really know what a mutual fund is yeah. either." But think of it as like one big shell so holding we'll just, a ton of things we'll, inside. We'll, we we're going we're running long already. Let's take a break and when we come back, right? What we'll do is we'll talk about the concept of the mutual fund and then the concept's going to make sense cuz you know, a mutual fund has its own process as well. Right. Okay, so Q engineer hit music. We come back after this. Nope. Break. Hello. Bueller. Hello. This is so <laughs> awesome when we get the podcast, right? Okay. And we don't get to splice no, it apart. Nope. No break. No break. We'll okay. just keep going. It's okay. Oh. <laughs> Aha. See what we did there? Asleep right. at the wheel. <laughs> we, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a guilt break. We'll be right back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shuck. On True Up. News Radio 1240. KQEN. All right, go time on the True Wealth Radio Show. If you were just joining us, catch the podcast because... Uh, we say funny things and you should just listen to it anyway. Sure, there's that. And occasionally there's uh, qualified information in there. We are... Very frequently, not just occasionally. Okay, well, fair enough. Just listen for Katie's part. It will be <laughs> available on iTunes. It is available through our webpage at littlejohnfs.com. And it is probably available through other resources. Uh, it's hosted on Blueberry, if you know where that is. And so, yeah, check it out. Good, clean family fun. Or at least whatever we talked about. Uh, All right. We were talking about mutual funds. Mutual funds. Now, you're using the analogy mutual funds or Walmart. Right. I, like I, it's I'm, a holding tank full of tons of stuff inside the store. Yeah, I'm going to go through what the legal definition of mutual fund is really quickly. Sure. And so for our listeners, I'm, I'm not, you know, you, you can handle this. I don't have to try to translate it or turn it into some other speak or analogize it or whatever. And I just invented a word, I'm pretty sure. Analogize? Analogize. Yeah, that's so, wonderful. So uh, here's what a mutual fund really is. A mutual fund first is an investment provided by a professional investment company. What they do is they pool 
monies from all kinds of different investors. So people mutually fund they an mutually account. put the money into a pot. They all receive proportionate ownership based on their amount in the pot. Okay. So one person puts in a dollar, another puts in $99. That's a 99% and a 1% each person has. But what you all do is you share in the ownership of the collective purchase, right? So if the mutual fund goes out and buys a whole bunch of different stocks, you all get proportionate ownership in all of the holdings, right? Right. It's not like one investor owns one of the stocks and another owner owns a different one. You all share proportionately in the whole strategy. So here's an example. Amazon stock as of today is 1,800 bucks. Yeah, 1,800 bucks, right? So if you wanted to buy one share of Amazon stock, it's expensive. You'd have to buy $1,800. So what happens if you don't have $1,800 to invest? You don't buy Amazon. You don't buy Amazon. But if you buy a mutual fund that holds Amazon, you can own Amazon indirectly via the fund by sharing with millions of your best friends whom you've never met. There you go. So, so that's, that's an easy way to get diversification. Right. Now, what makes it unique compared to going to, say, the New York Stock Exchange and buying or selling a stock? Buying or selling stocks, you are trading directly or through a, a dealer or broker network and inventory, but you're, you're basically directly purchasing the stock at whatever the momentary price is. You are not buying a mutual fund share at a moment in time. You give them their money, or you, rather you give them your money, and at the end of the day, they debit their fees of operations, and then they establish a share price, and your money purchases as many shares as it can. Right. Now, in order for you to get your money back out of said mutual fund, the fund must then be redeemed at the company. They figure out how many shares you own. At the end of the day, after they have taken all of the fees and associated costs and netted out the amount that the share value is worth, they will redeem your shares at that value. So do mutual funds have costs? Yes, yes. they do. Yes, they do. And so there are costs of ownership and investing. And so that is a very important thing to consider with any mutual fund. In fact, this is a huge part of what, say, Vanguard talks about. They are index funds primarily. Vanguard has other uh, mutual funds that are actively managed strategies with different expenses associated. But mo many of their funds are indexes that are designed to be as low cost as possible. Why is that important? Well, it's important because if you do not get an enhanced return benefit from active management in a strategy or a risk reduction component to your active management, the additional cost simply reduces the amount of return that you receive. All right. So I'm going to go back to the grocery store analogy because that makes sense to some of the people yep. I've talked to. So it's the difference between buying a gallon of milk at the grocery store versus buying it at the Quickie Mart. If you were to walk into the Quickie Mart with the same, let's say $2, a gallon of milk at a grocery store is $2, and a gallon of milk at a Quickie Mart is $4. Well, if you only had $2 to spend, then you'd only be able to get a half a gallon at the Quickie Mart. So you'd get less milk for the same price. So yeah, I have the puzzle, puzzle dog look because I'm not sure that... Uh, so keeping the mutual fund cost... Accurate. The mutual keeping fund the mutual fund cost down, just, meaning that... like I always use gas mileage. Maybe that's why. Because okay, I look at it and say, you use have two cars mileage. that are identical except one gets better mileage than the other. The one that gets better mileage is more cost effective to own. The right. better the mileage, okay. the better the Gas mileage. The, the awesome. Trade. That works for me too. So that's what I talk to people about is you want to get a car... I mean, if you could get two cars that are otherwise identical... Right. The same, same color, car, shape, but, everything else. But one of them gets double the mileage of the other... You get the one that gets the better mileage. Right. Because everything else is the same, but you just spend less to own it. Right. 
So that's the trick. And that's in, in the mutual fund arena, there are lots of ways to analyze a fund to make sure that you understand what you're buying. That's not what today's show is about. If you want to know more about that, contact our office or send us an email at info at littlejohnfs.com. And uh, if we or have reach out people, through Facebook. Right. Yeah. You know, but basically find us and let us know, hey, I'd like to understand more about uh, how mutual funds establish their price and what that means to me as an investor. Right. Fine. But not the purpose of today's show. No. Today's show is about really evaluating. Would what, you change anything? Would you change your strategy or not? And of course, I was challenged by a customer recently. Uh, not challenged. I was I was asked very constructively. So, well, you know, what would you have done? And, I, and my ultimate answer was, we stuck with our strategy, which is exactly what we wanted to do. It worked the way we intended the outcome. While I would always like to get more returns, even if we had an incredible year, I always want to be better than everybody else. I'm right. just competitive. I mean, but, who doesn't want more, right? So, so, so there's no such thing as a perfect score in my world. But uh, did it accomplish what we wanted it to? Did it mitigate risk where it needed to? Yes. And did it? Uh, still leave our clients in a position to capture recovery in the marketplace? I believe the answer yeah. is yes. And so my answer was, I wouldn't have changed things. We followed the process that we've established for our clients, and it did what it was supposed to do. And his response was, good. That's what I wanted to hear. Yeah. And that was the interesting response was, that's what he wanted to hear. I wasn't, you know, he, he I was not feeding him a line. I said, you know, we developed a process for a reason. Well, and I looked at that two ways, right? Like, the first way is, you know, would you change something like, you know, did you make a mistake? Like rewording this question, right? Like, mm -hmm. did you make a mistake that you wish you could undo? But the second part of that, you had mentioned like, oh, well, if I would have known that it was going to go right back up when it did, I might have cannibalized on it a little bit more, right? Well, so there's yeah, there's I always the positive, like, hey, you know, I would have, if I would have known it was going to go right back up the next day, I might have taken more advantage of the situation. Sure. Well, that's my, if I could predict the future, I always want to buy on the low day and sell on the high day. But because I have no way to know where that is, right? instead, uh, we rely on different kinds of information and it's it's what it is it's, it's tactical decision making now that's a tricky one because there's a lot of debate over whether or not there's any value add from active management whatsoever right right and statistically, and that's what we do is active management our firm is active managers where it makes sense i've talked about this concept of efficiency we don't do a ton of active management on a lot of the large cap index style investments in the united states because they're broadly held, broadly researched, and there's not a lot of ways to parse that data to enhance the return in our experience. So in that case, compared to an index, if you can't beat it, join, join it. Join it, right. Right. Well, and so, if the market's continuing to go up, why right. would you need to go up? Right. So, so. We, we believe in, to a certain extent, a, a fairly uh, low-cost low core holdings that are index-driven. But there are areas of the marketplace where we think active manage com management can add value, and that's where we try to do that. And we also like to look at the economic conditions. I'll just say, think of it as headwinds or tailwinds, right? Did you know that airplanes choose altitude in many cases based on a combination of uh, air conditions, so turbulence and so forth, other traffic in the area, but also whether there is a headwind or a tailwind. Right. Is it pushing you or pushing against you? Right. And so uh, if you've ever been on an aircraft that arrived well ahead of schedule. It's because they because had they it had on their tush. Awesome <laughs> tailwind, right? And so their effective speed was magnified by a tailwind. 
And the tactical decision maker is trying to say, well, let's look for areas of the market where things are performing particularly well, and let's bias or overweight to those areas, and then let's opportunistically underweight other areas, there as opposed go. to just saying, hey, we'll set it and forget it, and we'll come back and look at it in a year. Right. So. Uh, we like active management less because of the returns it adds than because of the risks that we think it can help reduce. Right. And I've heard you say, like, it's harder to dig your, like, to fill back in the hole once you've dug it out oh, yeah, than it a, is to not fall in the hole in the first place. Yeah. So, th okay. Great, great math example. But for, because of the, the clock and because we're being clumsy about our breaks, <laughs> let's take our last, last break. break. Right. And when we come back, we're going to play a math game. Oh, yay. But math. it's not a lame math game. It's an <laughs> eye opener and it's kind of fun. So stick around. We'll be right back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shook. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240. KQEN. All right, gig, home stretch of the True Wealth Show. And if you're just joining us, reminder, podcast. Yeah. Now on iTunes. Also, you can get at the recordings through our website, littlejohnfs.com. And I encourage you. Uh, so we, we're we still not at a point where we take a lot of calls. And I think that has to do with some of the engineering questions uh, at the station here. But we love your feedback online. or questions so if and you, you can send us social media right email, email us a question ahead um, of time we can talk about on right. the air that helps so us we'll, too we'll, we'll talk on the air also we have a youtube channel called investment school so you can go check out our our youtube channel and we are basically you you give us questions we give you answers it's not a sales pitch or anything like that it's just we need to help with financial literacy in this country it's not well taught so we're out there translating for by the, the way world. i'm going to do a quick psa it's not too late to to contribute to your iras for 2018 truth but you're running up on the deadline because it's april 15th so truth. if you want to make a contribution to your iras or start one you got about two weeks. Right. Get moving. I will do PSA number two. This is a little bit of a pre-release, but uh, this is a very popular class that we do twice a year oh, in woo -woo. studio, right? Meaning in our office, we actually host it. We bring in attorney Derek Simmons and we do a will wills and estate and plans, right? Yeah. So wills and trusts, and it's it's a fair game. Any questions you want, we're going to walk through the what they do, the differences, the situations when you may need one or not need one, and... Uh, it's it is free to attend. We do ask for RSVPs because <laughs> fire code, but uh, that is and coming it's our up most next, heavily. It's attended. coming up next month. Um, we have not formalized some of the details. It'll be six p. It's actually April eighteenth. It'll be after tax deadline. Hey David, this is April already. I'm sorry. You said next month. Next it's month. this month. It's this month. Wow, it's coming up. <laughs> it's it's yeah. this month. It's third... coming up in sixteen days. Okay. So in two third weeks, Thursday. Yeah, is that what it a, is? It's a Thursday. It's the 18th. Third Thursday. Third Thursday. There you go. 18th, Wills and Trusts class. Right. And that one, uh, go check out our webpage to get more details. And you can also get uh, access to uh, digitally RSVP there. There you so. go. Okay. So we were talking. Yep. Math game. Math game. Math game. So Katie, we're going to play a math game. Uh-oh. And what we, what we want <laughs> to illustrate kidding. is why defense matters in investing. Yes. Okay? All right. Now, Let's do you've, it. in football, it turns out one of the best defenses that you can have is an offense that can score 60 points a game. 
Woo, woo, go because offense. It's just really hard to score more than 60 points, even if you've also got a great offense. So if you got an offense that scores 60 points, it takes a lot of pressure off the defense. Right. Okay. And investing, that may be true, but it may not. That's why we're going to play the math game. Okay. So, Katie, you are going to start with $100. Okay. Okay. And in the first year, your account is going to be crushed. Oh, okay. Yes. You are going to lose. 95% of your money. So I have $5 left? You have $5 left. Ouch. But don't worry. Okay. Because next year, we are going to have an epic investment return. It is a 100% return. Yay! Yay. How much money do you have? $10. Correct. Now, <laughs> here's the part you need to watch out for. Now, most investments will report their returns using what we would call a geometric return. So it's sort of a start to finish average return over a period of years. What you want to watch out for is actual averages. Because if you lose 95% and mm -hmm. then you make 100% the next year, what's your average return for those two years? Oh, probably like 2.5% or is, something. It is 2.5%. But right? it's so not really. <laughs> it's positive 2.5%. And yet, if that were the case, then you should have had. $100 was worth 10250 and then the year after that it should have been worth 100 roughly 105 and some change. change yeah. right? 105 12 or something like that. So and it's not it's worth 10. The issue is the when you fall in a hole the the deeper the hole gets the harder it is to crawl out, right? right. So let's do the same math. You have $100 and you lose 10%. I pull out of the market when it loses 10%. Well, Okay. Ta let's talk about tactical management, right? So, so, well, I would say, first of all, you better have a good reason right. at 10%. Because 10% is not... Right. And, okay. and the other is, maybe you don't want to just pull out of the market. First of all, having a single investment is pretty risky no matter what. And tactical management is not going to save you from a single investment risk. Okay. Right? That's all right. So, so let's go back to the let's original. let's stick with the math for a second first. Let's stick with the math. You lose 10%. Your $100 is worth... 90 how no, much, yeah, how much, maybe. Yeah, how much do you need to get back to where you started? If I had, is it like 15% or so? Not quite that, but it's more than 10. It's like 12. Right? So if you lose 10, you need like almost 12 to get out of the hole. Right. If you lose a third of Because 10% of 90 is right? only $9. I'm not back up to my right. 100 yet. But if you lose 33%, right? So your your $100 is now worth 70 some. So, so yeah, $67, right? You basically need a 50% return to get back to where you started. Right. So it's not like, oh, I and lost 20%. Lose, I need yeah, 20% more. If you lose 50%, you need 100 to get back. So the deeper in the hole you fall, the harder it is to climb out. Right. So the trick is don't fall in the hole, which is why we believe in tactical management. If you'd like to learn more, how must they contact us? 541-375-0898. All right, gang. So that's the trick. Uh, as always, if you are looking for financial help, certainly turn to somebody that you trust in your life. If not, give us a call. This has been David Littlejohn and Katie Shook. Thanks for joining us.